Hi, this is Larry Pasca, Executive Director of NCSS, the National Council for the Social Studies. This episode features an author published in an NCSS journal. Please enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, are you a change maker? I'm definitely a complainer for change. Does that count? Like I complain about a lot of things I want to change, when I'm, especially when I'm sitting on my couch. Does it ever go past the couch? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's interesting to think about how we make change. Yeah. Uh, and that's not always clear. It is, you know, I'm really involved on sidewalk stuff. I think you right. know that about, right? I'm on the Traffic Safety Commission. And so it is cool sometimes when I'm walking around the downtown area, I can like point at a curb cut that exists. And I'm like, I complained about that and they changed it. No kidding. So you can just, oh no, you got involved. You're a part, you're actually, what are, what's your role in this? I'm actually the chair. Now yes. The, in traffic safety commission as of this year which i was remand i was i got an email remanding me to cl- more closely follow robert's rules of orders during meetings which very much is not my style and so i have to actually read over those before our meeting tomorrow oh man i know you need to kind of get everyone involved and if, if they don't really uh, enjoy your leadership style they could things could go awry well it's more about like i have to like recognize who gets to speak and when which like is i don't like that as a teacher, I didn't like that responsibility. Interesting. Mm-hmm. But no, I think I think I've I've tried to make change. You know, I've I've clicked on online petitions before. Do those oh, make yeah. change? I've didn't. I've done many of those, and it's mm-hmm. nice. And then other people know that I've done them as well. We should go back and look at all our online petitions and see which ones happen. And then if it did, claim like responsibility. For oh yeah, because I don't really know if I followed up with many of them. And. I don't really know if I was really that invested in them if I did not follow up, you know? Right, right. I think the term for that is slacktivism. Interesting. Like slacker, slacker activism. So those are folks who just sign things to do it and then just move on to the next thing or move on to the Watchmen season. Uh, well, it was a very good season. Oh, I just, we can't go down this road. I just started watching it. And oh. being from Tulsa... It's it's I mean, it's a really powerful show to watch knowing the history and growing up there and having uh, oh, this is my only commentary I'll make. I will not go way down. There's a lot to say. And the Tulsa Race Massacre is one of the reasons I wanted to become a teacher because I didn't think that was being taught well in my community. But seeing pe- black people in all these pos- positions of power in the show is like this just really jarring experience because that's not like how Tulsa is, unfortunately, growing up. Yeah. Or is today. And so. Anyway, it's a it's a very powerful show, and I'm really looking forward to watching episode three and the rest of it. Oh my goodness! Yeah, keep going, and then we can talk. And if you're listening and you want to talk about Watchmen, feel free to tweet at us. But again, if you're going to spoil it, wait until Dan is finished. Which I think there's change makers on that show, right? I mean, <laughs> it's not totally off. Oh no, no, it's it's true. So as teachers, you know, our big thing, and I know that the C three frameworks. One of the things that they do is they ask. They try to get students more in the what to do with this information now. How can I make change based on it? Which we were then talking earlier about the 
the question, are you a change maker? Do you want to talk more about the, the group that put out uh, questions about this? Yeah, when we were thinking, uh, discussing for this episode, how, talking about how you make change, well, there is literally a 10 questions for young change makers from the Youth Participatory Politics Research Network, which is based out of Harvard University. So let's let's look at their 10 questions. Let's read these real quick. And we will have these in the show notes if you're interested. And let's think about maybe, are these good questions to pose to young people? Do we think that this would help them make change? So the questions are, why does it matter to me? How much should I share? How do I make it about more than myself? Where do we start? How can we make it easy and engaging for others to join in? How do we get wisdom from crowds? How do we handle the downside of crowds? Are we pursuing voice or influence or both? How do we get from voice to change? And how can we find allies? It's interesting. You think about those questions. I mean, would those help you to like work with your students to make change? So last year we had a training where we actually talked about this. Facing History came out to our school and we talked about the the 10 questions for participatory politics. Are you a change maker list? It was a really interesting conversation, and I would be interested in seeing how my colleagues put it into action. I know that we, with the new C3 frameworks and you know the, the cause, the call to action, we should be doing more of this. But I know that that last piece, and I know that we had Carly Muterties talk about this, but that seemed to be a very difficult, or it seems to be one of the the parts of the C3 frameworks that I fear um, does get get left out. Right. What, what did you think about the list? I think it's interesting. I do like that it starts, why does it matter to me? I mean, I think choosing, we can't choose topics for kids to make change about. Like, yeah. I think we did join with them in, in figuring out what they're interested in. But, I mean, kids are already leading movements, right? You think about climate change and kids are the leading activists and you've got a Thurnberg winning, you know, a Times person of the year in, in her activism. And she's a lot, you have a lot of young people who are active, but um, she's often been singled out, although there's a lot of people working on that. And so I think young kids are making a difference often already, and we shouldn't assume that they're not. So working with them to identify issues, I think is important. But I think what are we doing in social studies if we're not making change? And I think we're in an era, very troubling times right now. And yeah. I think certainly that's becoming evident. And I know I feel distressed and I feel like we, we've all got to start doing more and we can't leave out the fourth part of the C3 framework, right? right? We've got to we got to actually make change. The The question that I I think I, I'm staring at right now and I stare at often is how do we handle the downside of crowds? Like that's such an interesting question. And it's so it's it's a really good question. If you're ever going to have an event, there are going to be crowds. And then what do you do with that? Like there could be negative parts of what people are saying or people could be leaving trash around. And that's actually something very important. If you're going to have a big event and you're to, all of a sudden everyone's leaving trash, like that's what you are going to be remembered by. And so really kind of thinking through like, the downside of crowds and what crowds could do, I think is a fascinating question. I think we need somebody to help us think through these issues a little bit more. And it's really cool today because I get to bring on one of my research partners, but also a very good friend who's really helped me think about a lot of things and been a partner in working on some of these issues. And so if it's okay with you, Michael, I'd like to welcome into the podcast, Marie Heath. Hey. Hey, Marie Heath. We've met before. I know you. Yes, we go way back, I think. NCSS at, at some point. An NCSS or two. That's right. And that's how I measure time passing, too. Yes, yes. That's how we understand chronology. Yes. Our NCSS conferences. 
<laughs> we, it is 10 months until NCSS. That's how I tell people what <laughs> time of the year it is. How old you are. It'll be the 100th conference. You're right, it will. That means there's been 199 NCSSs at this point. And that's, you know, how long our measurement of time goes. Yeah. <laughs> what exactly? Yeah, the NCSS. World, I... World War One. I, I actually, it, it didn't start in, you know, 19... 19- do the math do the math <laughs> it started in year four of ncss maybe we should stick with our our current you know if we're thinking of making changes maybe we should stick with our current calendars until we're more prepared okay. so can you can you tell us a little bit more about your background in education yes i would love to thank you i am a public school graduate i went to public schools in maryland and then i went to a public university and i got my undergraduate degree in history and then i went back and got my mat and started teaching and i was a social studies teacher for seven years in the maryland public schools and then i got my doctorate in educational technology and now i'm an assistant professor at loyola university of maryland and i teach and tech to MED folks, and then social studies methods to our pre-service teachers. So that's sort of my professional education background. So I think that that background kind of gives me a couple different strands, one of which is the social studies strand, and that sort of orients me towards citizenship and civic engagement. And then that ties in with the, the commitment to public education, which for me isn't just a way to have an educated citizenry, but is also actually a place for democracy. So I think it's democracy through schools, not just with the end goal of a robust democracy. And I think the public education is important for that reason. And then finally, there's that that ed tech strand that kind of initially it oriented me towards changes that would be possible for participation because of technology. And I think I was telling Dan earlier that I feel like I've had my own cycle of hope, hype, and disappointment with technology. And I I initially thought, oh, this is going to cause just democratization of information and, and access and communities, and we'll be able to, you know, span the globe and create a global community. And now it's 2020, and <laughs> I... I feel a different sense of urgency about democracy. Would you say that you are like a booster or like a a mascot of democracy in any, like what's your background in masketry? <laughs> you know, I've always been a mascot. <laughs> See, I, I, I figured a way in. Yeah. Yeah. I like how you slip that in there. <laughs> I just, I, I like to use big gestures to make change without words. <laughs> Now, do you have, and you have, you have some sort of formal training in this? (laughs) Yes. So, you know, I actually, I started as a public school mascot. I was the high school lion and then I was the Towson University tiger. And I feel like, you know, you're supposed to keep the head on and not let anybody know this, but this is my big, my big coming out. I was the Ravens mascot too. And Michael, I got to go to the Super Bowl when it was in Tampa. So that what? was pretty cool. Yeah. And they as won. the mascot. And yeah, they you won. Team won, right? Yeah. Do you get a ring as a mascot? No. It's it's my one regret. It's the one that got away, my Super Bowl ring. 
Well, I think that we at a later time are going to need a full episode on mascots and all the debates around, you know, public expenditures on their suits. Is that really where we should be spending our our taxpayer our money? tax dollars? Uh, <laughs> we'll invite you back on that episode. I would love it to. It sounds like a good one. I'll do the whole thing just mute and we'll see how that works. I'll just Oh, right. No, that we'd have to do it on video. Now, you and actually we have you on here because you recently were published in the October issue of Social Education. Congratulations on that. Thanks. And interestingly, you wrote that with Dan Krutka, our my <laughs> co-host. I know that guy. <laughs> How exciting for... So the article is called How Social Media Made It Easier to Affect Change, Inquiring into the Tactics of Change Through Primary Sources. Do you mind telling us a little bit about and Dan, feel free to talk not as much. Not as much. We've heard enough Dan rants on social media technology recently. I think we should have a new voice here. Dan complains from the couch. Exactly. That's his other podcast if you haven't. Oh, obviously you, you, you're familiar with it. Unfortunately, the only subscriber to that is my wife. And she, <laughs> and she does. She wants to unlike her subscription. <laughs> yeah. So Dan and I wrote that and the title is actually the inquiry question. So we wrote it as using the C3 framework as an inquiry, asking, trying to investigate ways that people make change, particularly when they're sitting outside of the traditional norms of making change in democracy. So groups that are disenfranchised, marginalized, how do you make change? Because a lot of times, you know, we talk about, we'll teach the civil rights, for instance, as history, but not necessarily as ways that we can learn from the civil rights movement to make social change. So we don't necessarily take tactics from the civil rights movement. We teach what happened. And I'll just leave aside that sometimes we teach it as a done deal, as if it's over, as if there was a movement that ended instead of something that goes on. And so we thought, what if we we had both read Zainab Tufekci's book, and I, Dan's probably shared that in his other social media podcasts, but she looks at the way that networked activism is similar and different to, I guess we'll say traditional or unnetworked activism. And so we thought, how can we develop a lesson for social studies students where they can not just investigate what happened, but part of what they're learning in this is ways to make change as they also are sort of thinking about the social studies of change and learning about what change is. So yeah, Zainab Tufetchi is definitely a change maker and kind of one of my academic heroes. Like she studies movements. And so like when the Hong Kong protests broke out, she like jumps on a plane and goes to Hong Kong and walks around the crowds, like way bigger change maker and better researcher and more active than me. So she's been a hero for me. And I know Marie and I talk about her work a lot. And so her book she wrote is Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Networked Protest. And so essentially we both read that book and and tried to think about how could this be part of what social studies teachers do. And so she came up with three ways that that people can make change. So it's a little bit different of a list than our change makers list. She said, one thing you can do to make activists can do to make change is shift narratives. And so that is about like the ways that people frame and think of issues. And so part of the civil rights movement, for example, with civil civil disobedience was when people saw the violence of, you know, bigots in the South, 
and the way they were, you know, using that violence in, in ways that were photographed and, and put on video, it became very, it came a way to show the violence, the structural violence that existed in the South. And so it started to shift the narrative around, you know, civil rights and the way people framed it. And so today people may do that through hashtags. And so we bring up an example um, about how black feminists, and this comes, I, I, this came out of Feminista Jones' book, recent book she has, where she talks about social media. And so she has, like, for example, hashtags talking about street harassment, and they had hashtags like hashtag UOKSIS or or police violence against black girls and women's hashtag say her name, and how these were meant to bring up narratives that were often ignored. And so, and the next way that people can make change is threatening disruption. So I think threatening disruption is tied a little bit to signaling with to power, right? So threatening disruption is that you interrupt economic or political forces. So threatening disruption might be the bus boycott, but it's also threatening disruption is most effective when power believes that you have the capacity to disrupt. And so there's there sort of tied together that you can signal that you have capacity to to come in and interrupt whatever it is, economic spaces, political spaces. More recent examples would be, for example, you know, how LaDonna Brave Bull Allard, who is Standing Rock Sue, you know, was able to bring indigenous activists to protest the energy transfer partners to code access pipeline. And so you saw hashtag no DAPL is kind of like a modern way of thinking about that. A very past example of that is there was a, a bunch of, I believe they were Irish folk who did not want to, this English landlord uh, was would not reduce their rents. And so they decided that they were not going to pay him. Uh, his name was actually Boycott, Charles Boycott. And that's how we get the term boycott. I don't know. The story's probably much cooler than that, but uh, that's all I have right now. Really Rhymes quickly. with mascot. That's true. In have and have not. Which and if you boycott, wonder, they're not going to have your money. Which also makes me wonder if there was a Charles mascot. Charlotte mascot. <laughs> so the the sort of long term goal is that all of these things, signaling to power, um, shifting narratives, and disrupting spaces is going to lead to institutional long-term change. And so that those things combined will lead to changes at the polls, in the courts, through legislation, which I think we think of as sort of traditional democratic change. But if you are operating outside the system of democracy, then those other ways of making change can sort of force to a head eventually the institutional change. So how do you, how does your inquiry work? How do you bring this to students? Oh, good question. So I'm full of them. Yeah. Maybe that's why you have a podcast. Um, so we put together, um, we compare a timeline of the changes that occur during the civil rights in 1950s and 1960s compared with a timeline of events. That timeline culminates with the March on Washington. Actually, we, we have one more event after that, um, the tent city in Washington. But then we compare that, we have students compare that with a timeline of the women's movement and the women's march in particular, which begins with the Women's March on Washington, and then has these 
um, different actions after that. And so students order the first and they look order the first timeline, um, looking for those different ways of making change, signaling to power, occupying spaces, disrupting and shifting narrative. And so they look for the tactics and they look at the timeline and then they do the same thing with the second timeline. So they organize the events, look at the tactics, hopefully then facilitated with discussion about the the length of time that uh, each movement took or that we pulled from, the different types of tactics, the way in the modern movement that the tactics were facilitated by social media. So for instance, we have you know digital invitations to the Women's March or Instagram posts of people postcarding, YouTube videos of the women during Brett Kavanaugh's hearings, being carried out of the hearings, you know, one woman is in a wheelchair and she's being carried out. And so we have like sort of sort of shifting narratives of social media. So there's like, I think there's nine primary documents for each the the civil rights movement and the women's march. Mm-hmm. And so as they go through it, it's it's really interesting. It's a challenge for them to identify which of these three items fit. And there's often good discussions that happen during it. So One of my favorite things about these types of inquiry lessons, and Marie and I have both taught this lesson several times and taught it together one time, which was really fun to be able to do. Um, And sorry, more than one time, actually, we've we've taught together. We did it at NCSS and then Marie was out here at the University of Texas and we did it here for a conference. And, you know, it's a great form of teaching because you just hand the documents to your the groups. And then you just kind of walk around for a while and you don't have a lot to do because they need time. And so I always tell people like, Doing more inquiry lessons is a great way to keep your energy up so you can hit the gym after work. Uh, as opposed and you can to get your steps in too. Yeah. Well, when other times that I'm teaching, I'm like worn out by the end of the day because I'm doing all the work. Like the students really have to figure out a lot. And in fact, you have to kind of leave them alone for a little bit during it. So I, I, I always tell my you know, pre-service teachers, I'm like, walk around, get involved with the groups. But I found at the beginning of this activity, like I actually need to like leave them alone and give them time to work through it and then come for questions like seven, eight minutes into it. So then we we ask the students to compare the different timelines and compare the tactics that they used. And what they end up noticing is also sort of part of the thesis of Tifechi's book is that networked activism can support a lot of bringing people together, which, by the way, Michael, this ties back, I think, to your your big crowds question too. One of the obvious things about the women's march is that it starts with the march and you're able to get so many people together in such a short amount of time that then suddenly disperse and the actions sort of maybe potentially peter out instead of building capacity and facility and quickness and responses to different challenges that culminate in an incredible amount of organization required to have a march before social media. And so as the as students look at the different lessons, one of the conclusions they come to is that you can you can gather people quickly. You can gather big crowds in from what is it, November to January, you know, you can you can gather an enormous amount of people, but the signal that you send with your enormous amount of people is different than before social media. So I think that maybe crowds mean something different now too. So 
a big crowd is still important, but a big crowd on its own isn't necessarily signaling change. It was interesting that the the things you're looking at, one of them ends with the march and the other one's not. I mean, I know there's another step, but the, the other one starts with the march. It's kind of fascinating. And there's other documents in the set that really pair together. For example, one of the documents you can see in the article and all these are available. This lesson's like ready to go. If you need a lesson, this is like a three to four day lesson that you could teach in a U.S. history or government civics class. And um, one of the or documents, just your neighborhood, uh, your neighbor's. You could. You could. It's actually, I mean, I found it pretty fun. I think you could convince a, a party. Friday nights are really yeah. fun. Yeah. And and so one of the documents actually is about people having fun. The contemporary document is a social, is a um, Instagram post from people who are postcarding at a restaurant. And so you kind of think about like, why are they postcarding? How does that make change? And it really contrasts with people doing a sit-in where there's violence you know, against them. And so it's a very violent picture from Jackson, Mississippi of people peacefully sitting there with people harassing them. And so you think about like how even social media can make it comfortable sometimes today to do activism from your bedroom or your favorite wine shop. But there's a real question about does that make the difference? And does the movement have the kind of tactical resilience and flexibility and strength to make change? And I think when I talk to a lot of people and they look at these documents, the final, we come back to the compelling question at the end. And I, I don't know if this has been your experience too, Marie, when we've done it together. I think people tend to say, as social media made it easier to affect change? No, but there is evidence that it has made real differences in certain cases. And so I think it's more about figuring out when does it make change and under what conditions and when does it fall short, right, for us? And when do we get a false sense of a movement that's not having the effects we want? And so that's the real challenge. There's not a right answer to this question, I don't think. Yeah. And I think to add on to that, you know, Stephanie Schroeder just had an article come out about Facebook groups and uh, indivisible groups. And I think one of her big conclusions is that social media has created a level of consciousness raising that folks who were not activists, let's say before Donald Trump's election to the presidency, and then sort of were moved by that, but still maybe not sure what to do or not sure why they were really so upset um, has provided an opportunity for awareness and consciousness raising and narrative sharing that maybe didn't exist for folks before or in the same way. So I know some teachers tr might be a little bit, not turned off, but a little bit reticent to do this because of the modern day political climate. What advice do you have for those teachers? I think that's a really good question. And I would certainly understand that in general right now, you know, social studies is political, but I would personally just argue that all teaching is political, but it is political by nature because we are developing citizens. And so it feels maybe particularly fraught, but I also think that that's, that is literally part of what we do. And so um, helping, so I, while I, I understand that feeling there are pressures that exist today because everything is just tense and hot and fraught, that we, part of our mandate as social studies teachers is to work on citizenship development and understanding how you make change and participate in a democracy is is part of that. And so I don't think that this necessarily says 
you should believe a particular thing. Our lesson is if you want to participate and make change, these are ways that it is possible. And so my sort of pushback or response would be that's our goal is to help citizens understand how they matter and can be part of a process or if they're not part of the process, you know, if they're marginalized and pushed out of the process, how they can engage to make the world more just. And I'll add too, I think, um, I think one tip thing that tip I give teachers is to reframe the argument around justice. I think, you know, I, I'm going to, we'll probably talk about this later in the podcast, but I've been thinking a lot about Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. And essentially in that letter, uh, he really rejects the, the call to unity from the clergymen in the South and reframes the whole argument around justice and says, you know, your concerns are not about justice. And so to me, oftentimes a changing the question to asking, would this policy be just? What would be the just thing to do in this? It takes it away from the talking points that politicians use and allows you to recenter so you could explore what is justice and then you can pursue those things. Because the hope in this is that you actually enact these tactics, like your students find ways to enact them and potentially even your class, which is very risky. But you know, historically teachers like Clara Looper were like leaders in sit-ins in the 50s. And that was very that was somewhat risky for her, although she was in a black school where she had support at that time. But, you know, I think it just comes down to, are we going to, you know, make change for the world we want? And there's always some risk in that. But if we don't do it, what kind of world are we going to get? So let's say that I am very excited uh, about this and, and I am very excited about it. And I have, uh, you know, I'm ready to do this next week. How would I do it? Like, where do I go? Good news is you can. Dan and I have put together a Google document and it has all of the primary sources. It has PowerPoint slides and it has the inquiry lesson all there so that if you wanted to teach it, you can click on that, download it, modify it how you see fit for your students and then pick it up and use it. And then tell us how it goes because we'd love to make it better and hear what your students thought about it and what you thought about it. Online and in other spaces. Yes. <laughs> and I think there's like, you could also choose to have a new set of documents, right? Like we use the Women's March, but I think using Black Lives Matter um, documents would be tremendous. And actually, we've talked about that we would like to add another set of documents and thinking about how different movements respond. So if you have, you know, Latinx students in your school primarily or or you're in a community with a lot of indigenous students, maybe choosing documents that, you know, from their communities and um, could be a way to see how indigenous people are making change today and compare those documents to other historical examples. So there's there's a lot of possibilities. That sounds great. Look, uh, Marie, thank you so much for, for joining us today. And Dan, thank you for co-hosting and joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'll, uh, you know, talk about mascotting and citizenship anytime. We'll take you up on that. Now, Marie, I, we know where you can find Dan because he's kind of here. But where can our listeners find you or your work online? So you can find me at Marie K. Heath on Twitter. Or that's, I mean, social media wise, that's probably where I'm hanging out. I've, I've gotten rid of Zuckerberg products. So I'm not on any other social media spaces. You're not WhatsApping? Um, I'm not WhatsApping. I'm not Instagramming or Facebooking. All right. Well, we will see you there, definitely. And again, thank you so much for joining us today. And we hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. 
We are all about sharing learning at the Visions of Education podcast. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, tweet us at Visions of Ed or hit us up on the Facebook where Michael hopefully checks the posts because I don't. And if you haven't already subscribed to Visions of Education, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and that one place Michael signed us up, which we think is Pinterest or just wherever. Why are we on Pinterest? That's weird. I don't know. And message us if you want us to be somewhere else and we're not there. <laughs> and if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. And I actually think we do have to, for the next episode, we definitely have one. All right. Because forward. Marie's writing it right now. I can see her. Thank you so much. And we would like to thank Zach Seitz for his diligent editing of these episodes. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time. This is the Vision of Education podcast. Signing off.